How's it going, everybody? Uh, today I'm going to be talking to you, uh, Teresa Del Pilar. Now, I did this conversation a few weeks ago, last month, last year, uh, a couple months ago, a few months ago. Uh, basically, it was the height of pandemic. Uh, she is in Spain. I'm in where I'm at. Uh, and basically talked influences, talked uh, projects going on. And she's currently part of a project right now. I'm going to put a link to it in the description. It's called Project Big Hype. Uh, go check it out. It's on Kickstarter right now. Uh, enjoy the ad. And we are go. Uh, right. So, uh, to start things off, uh, can you tell us uh, your name and uh, what it is that you do? Um, well, my name is Teresa, Teresa del Pilar, and I am a, a cartoonist. I suppose you could use that word. I draw comics and illustrations, and I also am a teacher as well. So I do 50-50 illustration and cartooning and teaching. And yeah. I do web comics and comics in anthologies mostly. Well, um, the the one I know you from is correct me if I ha have the name wrong. Graduation nightmares. No, that's correct. Yeah, yeah. That is. Do uh, you want to talk about that? Uh, like, uh, like for those that don't know, what is it? Ah, uh, sure. So, graduation nightmares is my personal project. Is what I strive to do in my free time or when I'm not doing other commissions and things. And it's a webtoon webcomic. And for those who are not familiar with the platform, a webtoon is a online platform that has an app on the phone. If you are so inclined to read comics on your phone, and it has a enormous catalog of free comics to read and one of the many many comics in that platform is mine is graduation nightmares and it's basically a graphic novel but okay. online <laughs> now uh i'm going to try and describe the story of graduation nightmares correct me if i'm wrong um it follows a young woman who is about to graduate and it goes into uh dreams that she's having and uh it's half slice of life and half, uh, I don't know, self-discovery or uh, like um, uh, sur surreality. Uh, I don't know. Like, I'm, I'm trying to uh, not give things away, but she's like trying to figure something out about herself in the dreams. Yeah, yeah. I, I describe it as slice of life paranormal because it has to do with her nightmares and the fact that her nightmares are, in her opinion, trying to tell her what to do in real life. And, you know, the the chaos that that generates in her life as a result, because if you think that your nightmares are giving you messages, probably you're going to end up doing a lot of stupid things. So it's like comedy slice of life mixed with a little bit of paranormal nightmare stuff. Okay. All right. So uh, part of the reason why like, I, I figured I'd have you on uh, talk about things is uh, just get this out of the way. You're a part of a Kickstarter right now that's going on, I believe. Yes, actually, I am. Yeah. Uh, you want to go talk about that, or because we could talk sure. about you all day. So. 
No, no, I, I'll tell you about my Kickstarter. Well, it's not my Kickstarter. It's okay. a Arcane Industries. It's a, an indie publisher that puts together these really cool anthologies uh, that revolve around one topic. And this particular anthology is a collection of short stories between six and eight pages, all full color and all uh, self-conclusive. So you read it and it's a full story. And it's 170 pages, and if you want to get the PDF, just the digital copy, it's only $15. So it's really good value, in my opinion. And there's some really good uh, artists and writers involved. And the topic of the anthology, anthology is like the orders we are given. So it, it's a very broad topic, but it goes from like a child tell, uh, being told what to do to a lord and its warrior, which is my story. Uh, and, you know other types of commandments that we are given. I saw uh, some promotional art. Uh, I believe you you drew a, uh, all right, now I'm going to be saying this phrase a lot. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, uh, like a Chinese warrior dog? <laughs> Almost. It's a samurai. Yeah, it's a samurai oh, dog. I didn't want to go samurai because like everyone says samurai. Like, like there, I saw like uh, elements of like, okay, so samurai. Yeah, yeah, it is set in, in like what well, it is set in inverted commas in medieval Japan, and the dog is a samurai guardian of a okay. castle. Well, the, the uh, with your art, your art is uh, very. Uh, you did a very good job on that story, uh, based on the promotional art, just because like uh, you know how like you can tell artists like really enjoy what they do on certain projects, and on yeah. other projects it's like, all oh, right, here's another one. But like that one, like it looked like you uh, had fun with that one. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, who? Well, I'm not going to say who doesn't enjoy drawing dogs in armor, but you know, I know I do, and probably some people wouldn't. But I enjoy drawing animals, especially if uh, they're embodying uh, human traits, like anthropomorphic animals or animals doing human things. I find it fun. I like fables and I like things like that. So this was really fun to do. And I also I did it in collaboration with another artist. So I got out of the way all the stuff I don't like. So he did the backgrounds because he likes that. And I was like, well, Ooh. great, because I hate backgrounds. So we were both really happy. He could avoid character art, which he doesn't particularly enjoy, and I could avoid background art. Okay. Now, uh, to go back to basics a little bit. Uh, like, what are your influences when you're uh, creating art? Because uh, there's so many um, interesting things going on nowadays because uh, it used to be everybody listened to the radio, everybody watched the same television shows, everybody read the same books, but now that uh, you're, or everybody is, like, has the internet now, or has cable television or satellite TV, or what have you, like, uh, there's the, these kids that are being influenced by 1950s uh, guitarists that are, like, making garage uh, rock sounds that are, like, like not, not vintage, but just, like, their influences aren't the same thing anymore. So, like, right, what's yours? Yeah. Um, a mix. I like everybody. Uh, but I would say the most basic thing would be, um, you know, a manga, a, like Dragon Ball. Uh, when I was little, I used to love Dragon Ball. And that was a big influence. I, I really like the round shapes and the adventuring part of Dragon Ball. Not Dragon Ball Z, Dragon Ball. <laughs> Now that's interesting because uh, 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 in America, the uh, number one thing that got introduced to people first was Dragon Ball Z. Like, I know, yeah. 
and but it also depends on what, like because uh, I don't know about your situation, but in America, or at least for me, um, Dragon Ball Z was. Uh, I was telling somebody else in the previous interview. Um, I got up at six in the morning to set the VCR to uh, <laughs> record before I went to school. Uh, Sailor Moon and Dragon Ball Z. Yeah. So and but that was in like early nineties. Yes. The, then uh, late nineties. Uh, Dragon Ball uh, Z comes to Cartoon Network. Right. Yeah. No. Now, yeah. I, we got it before that. Well, the, well, the, the, that's where I'm curious now. Uh, you guys got Dragon Ball first, yes. uh, right? Okay. Yeah. So how how did you guys get Dragon Ball first? Well, uh, I'm from Spain, and in Spain we don't have uh, like a strong national cartoon industry. Like, uh, and most of our cartoons as kids uh, came from three sources. They came from uh, France, and we got, because, uh, you know, the French make animation and cartoons. So we got a lot of French cartoons, and we got uh, American cartoons, and we got Japanese cartoons. So it was always a mix. The, the television programming for children in Spain was a mix of those three sources. And, yeah, it was very, very different. But uh, I, I tended to prefer Dragon Ball to anything other, like any anything else. And uh, in terms of comics, it was the same. We got American comics, uh, French and Belgian comics, and Japanese comics. So those are like those three big areas of the world were my influences <laughs> in different little shows and series. Okay, so like uh, you had... I'm trying. I'm trying to like uh, put put my head around this because I'm trying to imagine what America would be like with an absence of comics, <laughs> because um, having read um, like Marvel and DC for the longest time, and plus like we got introduced to uh, manga like like late '90s, I early late, 2000s. Yeah. But um, like I'm something of a comics historian, and the. Um, uh, America used to have westerns. They used to have like romance comics. They used to have more than superheroes. Yeah. And like, yeah. and the older I get, the more stories that come out. The more like perspectives you get, you kind of get an understanding of how that happened. But like, I'm just trying to like imagine like what it would be like, because uh, well, like, ja- yeah. Well, j- supposedly Japan got comics because uh, of American GI. So. Like, I don't know if that's entirely true or not, because everybody had their own version of, uh, like, sequential storytelling on paper, but... Yeah. Well, the way my understanding of it is that there was this Swiss guy. uh, It was called Rodolf Toffer, and he was the first one to publish a comic book. And that was in the 1800s. And then after that, that got sent to America... And they started to do something similar, and then they influenced Japan. And it kind of like went round. There was something small in Europe that went to America because everyone was, you know, going to America, immigrating to America, and then it went round back to the uh, Japan. But then the funny thing about those things is that uh, every nation or every culture puts their spin on things. So the way yeah. the Japanese or the Europeans or the Americans interpret the the medium is is quite different and quite interesting. Oh, uh, I, I just love the approach that Japan has taken to it overall. In that, um, as long as it fits, like, like I think they, they don't, they have genres, but I think their publishing is bent towards demographics. Yeah. Like, uh, 
like they'll like target uh, women and young girls. They'll target uh, older men and what have you. And then they have Shonen Jump, which is like general audiences, but it's targeted like at young kids, not young yeah. kids, but like young boys. You know, like, yeah, the thirteen-year-old boy in Japan. But um, the the as long as the story is suitable for th- those demographics, no matter what it is, they'll put it out there. Yeah. Uh, but like I said, the more you hear about it, the more you realize, oh, okay, so there's uh, caveats. But uh, mm-hmm. I don't know. America is, is interesting because like right now we have like a thriving independent market, and Japan doesn't have that, according to certain people mm-hmm. I talk to. Not that much, no. Um, I mean, it's a it's a complicated story, and I think uh, the way we understand things is very different. So the Japanese understand genre very differently. We understand genre in the West as like the type of story you're telling. So like if you go to a library of comics, you would say like science fiction, mm-hmm. uh, superhero. So they would separate like what is the subject matter of the story rather than who is it addressed to which is the way Japanese comics are organized. Like, is it this is addressed or made for older women, older men, young girls, young boys, teenage girls, teenage boys. So they, they don't understand gender in the same way, and that's created some interesting... I think it opens people up to different types of stories in ways that they can't be open to here in, in uh, the West. Now... <sighs> Do you count like all the West as the West? Because I always looked at in the understanding of genre, yeah, we understand okay. genre in a similar way. Not in everything, but I think we have points in common that the Japanese do very differently. Oh yeah, but like in terms of uh, comics, like I always looked at European uh, tastes as like not just because the like lacks of superheroes, but just like the, the approach because like French comics, uh, like they they look at that as. Um, I don't know, like novels more so. Like, like now, mind you, I, my knowledge of French comics is uh, so very lacking at, at this point. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, like, I only hear about the ones that are super successful or the ones that are super bad because that's the way importing works. Like, you either get the ones that are so cheap because they suck, or they are so good and they are guaranteed. Like, they had an audience over there, so they come over. Right. So, but the uh, the because. Uh, when you go into the, like the the, I don't know. Do you, uh, in Spain are they called Pande Destinies or is it? Uh, no, that's French. Uh, that's French. Yeah, yeah. It, it, uh, but Pande Destinies is like the general term we use in general in the whole world, I think, to refer to that specific style of French and Belgium. That then other other countries can exploit that format and that style. But I think, you know, we generally call it BD as you know, Japanese comics are called manga. It's just a way to refer to that general style. You know, the the big album in color with super lush art, mm-hmm. uh, self-contained stories, maybe 80 pages. You know, that type of format is what people call Pandasini. Well, I'm such an American that I actually assume that, well, all of Europe must do it like that or something just because, <laughs> like, I'm not hearing about so many other comics, so... No, that's the the dominant uh, scene here in Europe. Yeah, the Bandesine scene. But you know, you have British comics, you have Italian comics, you have all sorts of comics. Okay. That work inside or outside of that format. But it is a format. It's the same like thinking about American comics as floppies. That mm-hmm. is the predominant uh, format that is used in America, the comic book floppy. But you know, not everyone in America does that. There's people that do graphic novels, or there's people that do hardcover books, or different formats. You know. 
but it is classically the format that is associated with that culture and that that scene. Well, it, over the last 20 years, it's been interesting with floppies because uh, me personally, I don't think they're going to die anytime soon. However, like it's uh, it's called the comic book industry for a reason. And it, yeah. like, in terms of business, like it's harder and harder to uh, it's like you're going to charge five dollars for a 32 page floppy. That is the problem. Yeah, <laughs> and, <laughs> so bloody expensive. <laughs> like I could see them uh, like. I, like I've put out podcast episodes before. It's like if I were to fix DC Comics or any comic book uh, publisher, like I would have like ten books instead of fifty, and just like uh, like you have the Batman book, which is the entire Batman family worth of titles, and it doesn't have to be twenty two pages each, but it just yeah. becomes like a like a, they used to do it back in the day called Showcase, where it's like well, this character's copyright is going to be uh, coming up soon, so we got to have a really good story or any story. Uh, to uh, make sure that we don't lose the character. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. you would get these, um, I don't know, Devil Dinosaur, uh, which I believe is a mo- uh, Marvel uh, property, but like you get the idea, like like that yeah. thing from the 60s that uh, still exists. So. Yeah. Yeah, well, like, just to give you an idea of the prices, I don't know what the prices uh, in America are, but for example, uh, last weekend I went to the comic shop and I bought, I don't know if people can see my screen, like for example, this comic, right? This is a an eighty page uh, color comic. This is British actually, but is uh, is the typical European format with the hardcover, really lush. This is fifteen dollars. And then I, I go to get a floppy, and it's five. What am I gonna get? These or the floppy? <laughs> for for th- uh, three floppies, or I'm gonna get that. Which uh, you're smart to get that. But yeah, this is the thing. I don't think the price is right at the moment. Otherwise, I think comic books wouldn't be in any perilous position at all. I, I think um, there there needs to be like more of an emphasis on online comics, uh, or even if if DC had or Marvel or any of the Americans had like a webtoons page, where it's just like, hey, these are our series. We're just gonna have like the scrolling because. I don't know if you've ever like. Well, I know you've done webtoons, but the um, uh, like Comicsology and that stuff. The uh, Comicsology, I think, requires more work than webtoons because webtoons, the the scrolling of it, you can have a single page be yes. a third of an episode. So, but with Comicsology, like, uh, it's still a lot more pages going into it. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of work to do in terms of um, formatting, pricing, and and distribution as well. I think one of the biggest problems of the American industry at the moment is distribution. Uh, Because, you know, Diamond and all that stuff is a bit problematic. (laughs) Well, earlier this year when Diamond decided not to uh, do their jobs, uh, like, mind you, like... uh, it was the pandemic going on, so they're like, we don't want to like risk infection uh, of our people. But mind you, like every store just collectively just like went like <laughs> when Diamond announced that uh, they were like pausing, and that just like I can I can only imagine how many shops uh, like folded because of that. Right. Even like even the big ones uh, like got hit hard with that one. Everyone had to either find a way to make money or uh, find a way to get uh, books to people. But even then, like they had no book, no new books coming in. 
Yeah, yeah. So that that is one problem you see, like having this strange monopoly of distribution. That doesn't happen in any industry. Like you're you're just trying to you have an intermediary taking the product to the cons, uh, consumers, and they have so much power. That's that's a strange situation that I, I, it's hard to understand how it happened. <laughs> Uh, I, I understand how it happened because um, the I'll put it to you this way. Every chance that uh, comics in America had to uh, increase their spread and increase their um, um, popularity, uh, they did the exact opposite of what they needed to do. Yeah. So <laughs> uh, like like 1950s comes out, uh, like the comics are like like it, are these ruining the children or whatever? So, uh, ah, yeah, the comics code. Mm -hmm. So they put the comics code on there, and certain publishers uh, couldn't uh, function anymore because, like, um, EC uh, at one point was the number one comic book company, and then they put the code on there, and it's like, well, they can't publish their stories anymore. Like, they're like, oh, the, what what have you? Then. Um, Newspaper distributors the, the, uh, stopped distributing the comics um, because they didn't sell it. Like the, the price point uh, couldn't work anymore. Right. Now, mind you, I'm talking off the top of my head, so I'm probably getting a lot of this wrong right now. So take it with a grain of salt. But uh, then the direct market uh, comes out, and the direct market uh, was all these individual comic shops that are dedicated to selling comics. And they only sold what sold. So Westerns, romance, um, sci-fi stories, like they all didn't sell as much as superheroes. So everybody is like just focusing on superheroes. So that's what happens to like DC, Marvel. They uh, really uh, succeed. But then uh, you have these stragglers like Archie or um, try to think the good. Uh, there was a couple like Dark Horse uh, came out in the 80s at the like the dawn of um uh the direct market and then it was just uh you had a monopoly uh from diamond because marvel had, there was don't forget marvel bought a uh, heroes world which is a distributor and that folded because marvel was poorly run and that one like i'll put, I'll put it to you this way it's a miracle that we are still getting american comics right now Thank God the movies exist because it, it's a um, it's an impetus to keep them around for the yeah. bigger corporations. Yeah. So there you go. And that that would be a thing that uh, maybe an opportunity right now to fix that about distribution. We'll, we'll see. We'll see what happens. <laughs> well, but here's the one thing I'll take away from everything. Um, comics will never die. However, uh, DC Comics, Marvel Comics. They yeah. could, like it'll be very hard to do, but it could happen, and yeah, yeah, but, it would be but, very hard. But like, there's people like you out there that are telling their own stories on webtoons, like, uh, and uh, I don't, I only know of like one or two millionaire comic book artists, uh, so. Like I can only imagine, like that people who do it, they they do it because they have to do it, and they do it because they really enjoy doing it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, it, like we're talking about two things that uh, clash but need each other, which is 
business. You need to run a good business in order to get that product out to mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. But you also need people that don't care about business and care about making the comics. And I think if you don't balance those two rights, you end up with a lot of comics that nobody can read because they don't even know they exist and they can't reach them. Or you end up with a lot of comics that have no heart because they're just being created for the market and not from creators. So, yeah, I think finding the the balance between those two is key. And having a platform such as Webtoons, which they take care of the formatting and the programming and everything, and I don't have to worry too much about it. I just have to put my work in there and tell everyone, hey, it's here. If you want to read it, it's free. (laughs) Well, uh, did you ever uh, read or watch Genshiken? Uh, the 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 one about the club the yep yeah I I I read the first bit but I haven't read the whole thing okay I would recommend reading the whole thing only because um, they get a comic out don't they <laughs> yep mm-hmm. it is the I don't know about the most accurate but it is maybe the truest thing I've ever seen about like uh, making comics uh, or making a comic like is uh, like there's all these like little things and like little discussions. It's like that, that you could definitely tell that because uh, uh, them going to Comic Cat two times or whatever. Like as fans, they're waiting in line for uh, like hours in the baking sun in in the summertime, uh, trying to get into the convention. And then when they're actually like having the comic, and then they're sitting at the table, and it's like, oh man, sitting at this table is so hard or whatever. I would, I just wish I could just like sit in a line all day and just like trying to get in here and just enjoy myself. Or um, th- there's this one part like because this conversation reminded me of it. Um, there's a character that is kind of slimy, kind of creepy or whatever. He's just going around to all the artists and he's just trying to uh, get all the most popular artists to do one book together. And like he knows it'll sell and everybody knows it'll sell, but nobody wants to deal with this guy. And uh that to me is comics, because uh, like there's this. Cause, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with DC Comics is like founding history or whatever, but DC Comics started with the mob. <laughs> A lot of things start out like that. Yeah, I can see that being true. <laughs> the uh, uh, yeah, because I've 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 done it. I've tried to be a YouTuber for the last twenty years, and I like I just keep failing at it. <laughs> but the but I just keep doing it because, like, I, I enjoy, like, t- like moments like this where I get to talk to people. Uh, and the, uh, yeah, one of my original projects was uh, talking about, like, the oral history of comics and just me explaining things. As Some of it was pretty uh, bad, too, because it was just, like, I, I didn't have as much knowledge as I have now. But uh, DC Comics, like, uh, the, the guy that started it was kind of, not crazy, but he was eccentric. And the the two guys that came in there uh, had mob connections, so they uh, they like swindled him out of like his third of uh, Detective Comics, and then cause that's what where, uh, where DC comes from. And yeah. uh, like I want to say it was like pre Superman, pre Batman, but he was pissed uh, when Superman and Batman dropped, and like the company got big. Oh yeah, there was a lot of dodgy dealings with. Um... Uh, IP and uh, rights and things like that back then. Back then, it was all done very, very informally, and and you know, then when you do things like that, people tend to be um, taken advantage of if they're a bit naive. Well, 
I there's that, and also like they didn't know that the, it was going to be as successful as it was. Uh, at, at like to them, they they were trying to make uh make rent or whatever, make a profit. Yeah. Like that was their goal. Like they didn't think about oh this is going to be a radio show, this is going to be a movie, this is going to be a video game. They had no concept of that. Yeah, this is going to be a roller coaster. Oh. <laughs> In the Warner Brothers Park. <laughs> yeah, like you can never predict those things, but I think it's always it's a good lesson for all of us. Like what happened to Batman's writer as well, the the other guy that wrote Bill Batman. Finger. Bill yeah. Finger. I think it's a, it's a testimony to it is okay to go out in and do things with like like I'm doing them. You know, I'm putting them out on webtoons. I'm like, everyone is free to read. But then you have to, you know, bear in mind that not everyone is as um, is not doing it. In a, not everyone is out there for the love of comics. Yeah, and you have to watch out a little bit because some people are out there to see if they can make a quick buck. Well, the the two that come to mind, uh, like, uh, do you follow Bleeding Cool at all? No, not that one. All right, what about uh, Prince Rich Johnston in general? Do you follow his? Because oh. he's like sort of like page six or um, uh, TMZ of comics, and occasionally he is the guy that you go to be like because he has the uh, a large enough audience and he's willing to put this stuff out there of. This guy doesn't pay. This guy uh, uh, right. swipes. Because uh, <laughs> uh, part of the, the, the press's function is to enforce um, um, uh, good practices. And the, like I actually did a story on, because uh, I've said this before, I'll say it again. Uh, Rich Johnson did a story on Josh Hoops, who was an art. Uh, he wasn't even an artist. He was a guy that would uh, say he's an artist. And then he would go to um, actual artists, get uh, get the artwork. Uh, so here's the publishers. Uh, here's Josh Hoops. Here's uh, the actual artist. Josh Hoops goes to the publishers. I am like this guy over here. And uh, like, do you guys have any work for me? It's like, yeah, we have work for you. So they pay Josh Hoops. And then uh, – Josh Hoops goes to the artist. All right, this is what we need. So like an agent, but a, a sleazy uh, agent. <laughs> he would pretend that he was the artist. Wow. Okay. So, so not so, like an agent. <laughs> so uh, he would pay the artist a little bit up front and like just say, uh, think uh, acting as the publisher or yeah. or a commissioner or whatever. And uh, so when the publisher would pay him, he would disappear. Once he got uh, the most of the money, uh, gone. So publisher uh, uh, comes out, hey, where's our pages? Artist, where's my money? So publishers uh, occasionally would uh, have to pay double because, A, they needed the pages for the work, so the artist might have gotten paid right. eventually. But like I did a story on uh, that one, I, but I just... I changed like the nature of like the whatever like that one's on webtoons right now. So uh, the I don't want to talk about me right now. I'm just uh, rambling at this moment. <laughs> Sorry about this. Uh, it's okay. So, so uh, what are your goals uh, going forward? Like with comics in general, or with graduation nightmares in particular? Both. I mean, like. Um, do you, like, do you see this being like a perpetual story where it's like, man, she's never graduated like 10 years later? <laughs> <laughs> she, 
she she fell off a cliff and is now an eternal coma, having nightmares forever. <laughs> Please don't. I hate those endings. I hate those endings. <laughs> no, don't worry. I'm not going to do that. I have an ending in mind, yeah, and I have a page count in mind. Uh, I'm a discovery writer, so I can't tell you exactly the page count. I don't have a script. I write scene by scene, and I know which bits I need to hit, and I... That's, I think, one of the reasons why I'm so slow, because I'm like, how do I get from here to here? Because I didn't plan it before, so I have to find out a solution. Um, and so uh, my plan is to finish Graduation Nightmares next year, uh, before the end of next year, hopefully. And it's about 150, 200 pages, somewhere around that. I'm on 110. So I think it's doable. I think it's okay. And once I finish that, uh, I have a few pitches that I'm going to do for publishers. And if they don't go through, if they don't get picked up by a publisher, then that would be my second webtoon. Because my idea is that webtoons is a great place to build up an audience and to, you know, um, get get my bearings with comics, like learn how to do it and see what I'm doing wrong. Okay. Well, uh, two things, because uh, I've... Uh, like I've gotten messages from you to like, hey, do you want to check these comics pages out? And your system of ABC, uh, uh, amazing, um, boring. boring, confusing. Like, yes. like th those are like that is a very good uh, editorial system in terms of like just like peer review. Um, and damn it, that was I'm going to save for the next one. Two things. Oh, uh, the uh, audience. Uh, one one of the best pieces of advice I've gotten from uh, editors in uh, at comic conventions um, have an audience. Like if, if you want work, like uh, come in with enough people that are uh, interested in your work uh, that it could justify selling uh, to other people. I don't know if, uh, like uh, like your uh, landscape is, but I would imagine that is true everywhere. Uh, yeah, pretty much. Uh, I mean, obviously not in like big uh, companies and big publishers. They they work more through, I mean, they have enough marketing budget to do their own thing if they want to. But, you know, for, for people starting up, I think it's a good uh, thing to go to the publisher and say, this is my work, this is what I do, this is my already published comic, and I have a couple thousand people following me. Uh, it's better than going and say like this is the thing I did in my basement. Nobody knows about me, and I don't want any feedback. It has to be like this, you know. I'm trying to become more open to criticism, uh, and more in. I don't know. I I'm trying to strike that balance between I have a vision and I know what story I want to tell, but I need to listen to other people. And I think what I'm learning through publishing this online and listening to the criticism and the comments people make is that uh, I. To get to the core of the story, what is it that I care about, and what is just things that I can get rid of? So as long as the and any of the criticism like doesn't go against the core of the story and the core of my mission, then I can change everything else. But at least I know that, and if I know that, I I I will remain true to my vision, regardless of revisions or or uh, impositions from publishers or editors or uh, an audience. That's what I'm focusing on right now. Understanding what is that core, what I'm trying to do. I don't know. I, I like to, I like to doing two things when I start a project. I like I want to start with a problem that needs a solution, and uh, like the, um, sometimes like that could be the first thing. Like it could be like instead of having an overarching story, like 
the as long as you solve that initial problem, uh, because that's what the my favorite kind of storytelling is. It's like, all right, the, the, uh, we solved the problem, but in solving the problem, we found out, oh, there's an even bigger problem going on right now. Uh, 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 are you a Warren Ellis reader by chance? A what? Uh, Warren Ellis? No. No, I don't okay. read. Okay, he wrote a novel uh, called uh, Gun Machine. Uh, it's a po- uh, police detective story. Um, the uh, first chapter is about uh, there's a guy with a shotgun that is uh, terrorizing a- an apartment building. Uh, that is the problem. They solve the problem. However, in solving the problem, they uh, become aware of uh, an apartment uh, build- an apartment uh, that has... Uh, 300 guns just arranged uh, on the walls. And clearly that is a violation of uh, you're not allowed to have that many guns on the wall. Like, so it's just weird. So they collect all the guns. They got to figure out whose apartment it is. They got to, but, and they have to test all these guns. Turns out a lot of these guns have a kill uh, attached to them. So the rest of the book is just trying to solve like, who is this killer with all these guns? So, uh, like that to me is what I aspire to in that, like, uh, you have a problem, it could be a small problem and it leads to a bigger problem, leads to more problems. It could be a lot of small problems, but, uh, then the end, it's just like the thing that you've been trying to deal with, uh, through the whole story that like it's solved. Right. And, or it doesn't even have to be fixed. Like, uh, it, like. Uh, I, I feel like uh, the, the uh, it's like the fifth stage of grieving. Like you have to find acceptance at the end. Like that—that's uh, what I try to go for. Yeah, I—I I don't know. I think obviously, like a story is the. You know, I, I do follow the the general structure of like, oh, there is you get you get out of your you know the the hero's journey type thing. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I do follow generally that thing, but I think for me, the most important thing is, like, what am I trying to say with this? Because sometimes, and it happens in real life as well, you open your mouth, you start telling a story, and when you end, you say, like, what was the point in that? Even mm-hmm. though it was a story with a perfect structure. <laughs> I, 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 I've, when I read a Shakespeare story, I, I ask myself, is this one of his mature works or is this one of his immature works? Uh, because like Macbeth, mature work. Uh, it's like, all right, he's actually saying something about um, uh, guilt, and stuff, yeah. guilt, power, like search for power, arrogance. Uh, when I, whereas I read something like, say, Othello, where it's like, oh, this is one of his immature works. It's like, like he has like a couple like, interesting parts with Iago, but then you think about it afterwards, it's like, wait a second, uh, did that just happen overnight? Did that all that, like, where it's, like, uh, Othello, uh, like, uh, doubts Desdemona over one day. Like, mm. uh, like, like, he, so it's, it's one of those things where it's just, like, uh, like, did the message get lost? Uh, uh, Alfred Hitchcock called it a refrigerator logic. When you're, like, at the middle of the night, you're going down to the refrigerator for a snack, and the light comes on, and all of a sudden you you're, forget. like, wait a second. How did he get from there to there? in five seconds when you knew it takes like 20 minutes to do that. Like, how does that happen? So, uh, I don't know. It's it, like, there's, there's good storytelling and then there's like great stories. 
So like I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying to like strike that perfect balance where it's like it's uh, no, I'm trying to do both. I'm trying to have good storytelling and it be a great story. Oh, for me, I don't know if I'll ever tell a great story, but I want what I'm trying to do mostly is to make people like what I would hate is for people to read my story and say, what was the point in that? Mm -hmm. That's what I would hate. And that's what I try to. I want people to finish reading a story and to understand what they get out of it. What, what was the story about without having to think too much? I don't know. Me personally, like even after all I just said, like I just want to tell a story. I want to tell a story for me that I've haven't seen because I've grown up with so many movies, so many comics, and there's nothing worse for me than like uh, a third of the way through. I know exactly how the rest of it's going to go. Like, like the the sooner I know, uh, like if I, if I can look at a trailer and not have to see the movie, uh, like there's nothing more drudgery than having to sit through that movie. Hmm. I don't know. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a compulsive rewatcher. I I watch films over and over and over if I really like what they're telling me. So, for example, Jurassic Park. I probably have seen that film like twenty times. Mm -hmm. And you you can sit through that one. Like that's a rewatchable movie. <laughs> yeah. Even if you know what's coming, it's just like the. It's just fantastic. The characters, yeah. the the theme, the music, the 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 rhythm, everything is just. Like you end that film and you're like, yeah, humans should be careful with dinosaurs. You know, like <laughs> that's mm -hmm. that's not the the. It's not a moralistic story. It's not a, but it's like an an examination of of something that even me when I watched it with a, as an eight year old, I understood what they were trying to tell me. They were trying to tell me like, you know, science is cool and we can do a lot of cool things, but maybe we should think about whether we should do them or not because then dinosaurs come and eat you. It's a very graphic representation of that idea. Well, the the uh, th there's that, and there's also th like the park was safe, like they were like they were ready to open. However, one Newman and uh, like cuts the power, and one storm, and your uh, control is gone. Yeah, like just like uh, sabot one saboteur, one sa one guy that sabotages it, and it's all d gone. Like like uh, like the that's all it takes. Yeah, once a tour and the lawyer gets eaten in the bathroom and <laughs> there's nothing you can do about it. I mean, it's oh. such a great film and the characters are, are so iconic and at the same time so likable. I don't know, I like every single character in that film, even the ones that are not supposed to be liked. I like the lawyer. The lawyer is great. <laughs> well, they're true to the characters. I mean, like uh, uh, the, the old man at the dinner table is like, man... Like you guys are ridiculous. Like the only one that's on my side is the blood sucking lawyer, and because yes. like that was the old man's uh, problem. It's like it's like I have the ability. We've done the work. We're ready to go. And then every scientist in there is just like, uh, yeah. like nature this finds could, a way. Yeah, this could go tits up. And he's like, what? No, no way. How? <laughs> so we're in the middle of a tropical island. There's a there's a massive storm coming. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> <laughs> all right yeah. so uh, go, go ahead uh, no i was just gonna say that that is my thing like uh, jurassic park uh, bit by bit is a is a good story that solves a problem that tells you something but at the end of the day what you are left with is that feeling of wow i know what that film was about all right give me one second i want to kill this phone yeah. 
Sorry about that. That's old school. Uh, it it it's. So how's the uh, like? Uh, I could cut this out if you want me to. How's the pandemic been for you guys over there? Not great, but at the moment, not great. Yeah, <laughs> I think the pandemic is not going great in a lot of places, but here in particular, in my city is not going great. Where we are forbidden from leaving the city at the minute. Oh, so we can move inside the city, but we cannot leave the city. There, uh, there's. I, I don't want to turn it into a political conversation, but like, uh, I want to see the next zombie movie that comes out after all of this because uh, there's going to be people that want to get bitten. There's going to be people that are. <laughs> uh, like, I don't believe like, no, it's happening. And... No, he's not a zombie. Like, the, don't, the zombies don't exist or whatever. Like, uh, meanwhile, there's a, a million zombies right around. It was like, ah, they're fine or whatever. I feel yeah. like, it's, like the next zombie movie that comes out of this has to be a comedy. Has to be. <laughs> or at least has to be more psychologically realistic to what's happening right now. Like, mm. we understand better how people behave in these situations. Well. It's got to be people buying, buying toilet roll. That's for sure. I, I've heard a lot of great theories on that one. Uh, like me, I thought it was because uh, they were panicking, right? Well, well, that's the that's number one. But number the the reason why I thought um, toilet paper uh, became as uh, sought after as it was was because uh, they don't know where things are made. So everyone says we get all of our toilet paper from this country that just shut down. So. Uh, yeah, but it happened worldwide. That, that's what I'm saying. Like everyone assumed <laughs> that uh, China makes the the toilet paper, and uh, it, it it was ridiculous. I mean, uh, it was really ridiculous. It was but the, funny. The, 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 I almost uh, ran out of toilet paper because of it. Well, we had a couple uh, of days of a panic. Like we have one roll left. What are we gonna do? Well, the panic <laughs> actually led to an actual shortage because yes, exactly, yeah, because uh, like. Even because there were shortage because like right now in America, like if you go to uh, places like that, they have a coin shortage because I, I don't know why we have a coin shortage. But apparently uh, the mint uh, like took a couple days off at, at a certain point, uh, which I don't understand how that worked. Uh, but like things like this is what leads to conspiracy theories like right now. Like uh, there's a bunch of people out there saying that America is just, just going get, to get rid of cash, which what? Yeah, <laughs> we're just going to everything will be digital like there's going to be no reason to have cash anymore. Everyone's going to have credit cards. So people but, are, are hoarding coins because they think there's not going to be cash. Uh, the, the, there are a lot of things going on that like because every time there's always like a great uh, upheaval or a term turmoil, um, like there's always opportunists out there that are getting rich like it, like even if there's not, like we're just gonna assume there are because that's how. Because like, because uh, you always hear about it a hundred years later. It's like, oh, that family they they own um, uh, this company that made this profit because of the war, or whatever. Right. You always hear about those. But the so right now we're we're just like half educated idiots that are uh, just as like, oh yeah, this is how things work. This is probably going on right now. But we have no idea what the hell is going on or why. Yeah, it's like I think is the the uncertainty because people don't know what's going to happen. They try to do something 
but like headless chickens. They're just running around doing shit because nobody knows that like you cannot predict what's going to happen or how to prepare for it because we don't mm-hmm. know. But people still want to prepare for it. That's what I think it's happening. It's like, oh, there's a deadly disease out there and you or your family might die of it. It's like, let's let's get toilet paper because they don't know what else to do. <laughs> well, the because uh, uh, social media has been really interesting because in, like it's made things worse and it's made things inter- uh, like a little bit better, too. Um, when Italy got hit, uh, I saw on Twitter... Um, you know it's a pandemic when because they go to the grocery store and they, this was a joke by the way it maybe not the best taste but it was a joke um uh the entire uh pasta uh shelf section in the supermarket was empty i think there was yeah. like a, a couple gluten-free noodles uh in there uh, left so if if you're really desperate for pasta uh like th- those were your options yeah uh, it was the same okay but the uh like for like the start of this in March, it was toilet paper, hand sanitizer, and, um, and meat. And here was meat for some reason. Well, and bleach. Well, uh, bleach you can uh, make sense because uh, you could kill anything with bleach. Like uh, yeah, people were buying it in like industrial uh, quantities. Well, do you have like Sam's like Club? Five, five have, liters like, or something. Do you have like Costco out there by you where you can buy things in There's bulk? There's a thing called Macro that is similar okay. where okay, you so... have a special, but you have to have a card that you own at mm-hmm. least a small business, but people get that card and buy for their families and stuff. It, it, it is so easy to get one of those damn, I, I don't like, I, I'm not saying it's easy, but it's simple enough because I know people that have those cards that yeah. do not, yeah. The... I know people. If I, if I want to go, I know a person that has one of them cards. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, there there was this one woman. She bought two pallets. Uh, like um, now, mind you, she could have used it. She could have needed it for a business because you have like you you have a lot of shaming going on in yeah. uh, social media where it's it's like this woman won't answer why. Which, by the way, she doesn't have to answer why. She doesn't answer to any other person. However, it's a bad optic when maybe she was getting rid of a body. Who knows? <laughs> Listen. Uh, oh. is, the, is the best moment to do it in the mi- in the middle of the panic. Yeah, Bye. just everyone disappeared or whatever. It's like uh, I don't know. Like uh, I I heard a news story where this one guy who was a park ranger he uh, went up to the mountain because when everything was starting to break in the middle of spring. Now, mind you, the Rocky Mountains uh, it's winter all year round in certain spots. Like, like at a certain elevation, it could snow at, during the summer and it could yeah. be gone instantly. Well, there was these campers. They were like, we're just going to hide out up here in seclusion uh, <laughs> that we're just going to wait for all this to blow over. But they were camping in Walmart tents. Like well your, your like weekender special. That's what they were using. And it was like. <laughs> Like, they were freezing to death, basically. Yeah, like they had to bring them all off the, the mountain because, uh, like, like three feet of snow and the tents collapsed. Uh, it was like, and they were stuck up there. So, <laughs> like, everyone like thinks they're a prepper, and then uh, they realize, oh shit, we don't know a damn thing. Yeah, just uh, you know, I think those posters from the Second World War are very, you know, the keep calm and mm-hmm. and carry on. Yep. 
that I, I understand more than ever why those were necessary. <laughs> well, do, do you know the story behind that one? The tunnels, yeah, because they, they, they had to follow. Well, that that poster actually got released after the war. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, the um, that poster was designed so that if the uh, Germans had, uh, like, landed on... Uh, uh, I always mix this up, British or English soil or whatever. Uh, if, if the British actually got invaded by ground troops uh, and got taken over, they were to have that ready to like, uh, keep calm and carry on. Like the, but I thought it was for the tunnels, right? It was, it, I, I don't know the whole story. This is what I heard. I heard it, it was not, it was towards the end of the, not, not even the end of the war, but it was like in case they got invaded and it came yeah. out afterwards. So like, what I heard, and I don't know if this is historical or just a lie that I was told, mm-hmm. um, they had these tunnels that I think are the metro tunnels, you know, the subway tunnels. And then they're mixed with, you know how claustrophobic the, the, the tube in London is? It's like a tiny little... I've, I've never been, however, I can imagine Well, if you've it. been the one in New York, mm-hmm. New York compared to London is like, I don't know, it's like the difference between a hut and a palace. Like London was made really early on and so it's just a, a, a hole literally yeah. it's like circular it's very very claustrophobic and so i think that this is what i was told that people were supposed to go into the metro tunnels and continue following the tunnels until they reach the end so that's the posters like keep calm and carry on is if they were having some sort of panic attack or something because they were just walking in an endless tiny tunnel with a ton of people all right well <sighs> We've done 53 minutes. All right. So far. Now, uh, before I go, uh, uh, where can people find you at on your socials? Uh, where can, do you have a website that people could go to? Uh, um, no, I don't. I don't do websites, but I do the YouTube. You can find me there, uh, Teresa del Pilar, which is Teresa, D-E-L, and Pilar, I like a pillar which is my name. And you can find me also on Instagram, same name, but with underscores. Um, you can find me on Webtoons if you look for Graduation Nightmares. All right. Thank you very much. Uh, uh, take care and all that. Yes, you too. <laughs> Stay safe and don't, don't panic. Keep calm. <laughs>